Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's podcast. Before I begin, just a quick shout out to everybody who joined over on Floatplane. Thank you very much. I'm really, really digging that service. And uh, I'm going to try very hard to do more subscriber-based things, even at the very least just giving early access to videos and stuff like that. And I'm trying to do a bunch more, like even small content just for fun. But either way, thank you to everybody that subscribed over there. I really think Floatplane and Patreon are probably going to be the two main focuses. And we'll see what happens with the rest afterwards. But as always, I I just want to do whatever's easiest for all of you. And I always listen to your thoughts and opinions on that. So feel free to post about it. But anyway, let's jump right into the news. First up, a previously unreleased version of the game Cooley Skunk was found for the Super Nintendo. And this was a game that was originally on the PS1. And I guess they started development on the SNES version, but then wanted to move on to the new platform. And this was found because at one point, the Satellaview had broadcasted a demo of the game, which apparently turned out to be the full game, just ROM-hacked to only allow the first few levels. So someone found that uh, at a random shop in Akihabara, picked it up for 500 bucks, and dumped it for everybody. So there was a couple things that I thought was really cool about this whole situation. Um, DF Retro, John Linneman, did a, a full analysis of both this found version and the PS1 version and found a couple of pretty cool things. Uh, first, the PS1 version is better, so um, we didn't really miss out on a, a less interesting version. Still a game that's kind of fun. And also, he reiterated the point that the Cooley Skunk release for the PS1 didn't do so well, but that's probably because at the time, people were so obsessed with 3D graphics, uh, a lot of people felt that the original 2D side-scrolling style was kind of obsolete, so they probably just didn't get as much press and as much excitement as a result. I mean, it's all speculation, of course, but the end result is it's certainly not a bad game, and probably worth playing if you like 2D side-scrolling. Um, and the other kind of cool thing was uh, the person who found this game only asked for what they paid for it before they released it. Um, there was a bit of a confusion at first because the original tweet from Forest of Illusion kind of almost seemed like the person who found it was holding it for ransom. And no no disrespect to Forest of Illusion at all. I know firsthand what it's like to try to jam an explanation into 240 characters and have everybody misunderstand. I totally get it. No disrespect. But um, that was not the count. Uh, the case at all. The person who bought it uh, just, you know, politely asked for help getting their money returned so that they could release this prototype to the public. And I think that's totally cool. Um, I just, I wanted to make sure to make that point because a lot of people, including myself, read the original tweet and went, so they're holding it for a ransom? Like, 
a lot of people do. So kind of sucks because uh, New York Times even just did an article with uh, a shitty clickbait title that was actually a good article about uh, the collectibles in general and how video games and video game collecting is go up, going up in price and stuff like that. Uh, and there's just a lot of people now who are part of the scene that are only here to try to make a buck. Uh, we've known that for years with one of my favorite companies, Pound, has actually created a company to make a buck off of us. And some, you know, some scalpers have also tried to find ways to do that, both with game collectibles, RGB monitors, did the whole warning video about that, as, as well as other stuff. So the good news is we're not a niche community anymore. The, the rest of the world is starting to realize that classic games aren't just nostalgia. There's a really great reason that some of us want to go play those games. But the bad news is we're not just a niche community anymore, so we get the same garbage that everybody else has to deal with. So... I got a little bit off track there, but back to the whole point. Check out the Cooley Skunk Dump if you would like to experience a game that was mostly complete. Definitely not polished, but kind of cool for the Super Nintendo. And if you have the ability to, uh, and the time, I guess, play it a little bit on the SNES, and then play it again on the PlayStation 1, and do your own mini-in-your-head comparison of which things you like better about each. The graphics were certainly something that um, that I noticed, because while the graphics were technically better on the PlayStation, my eyes preferred some of the looks of the SNES version. So now you have the ability to check it out yourself, uh, and please check out the DF Retro post, as well as uh, Smoke Monsters footage if you'd like to see what it looks like through the mister in pretty much the highest quality possible. Matt Phillips, the creator of Tanglewood, was just featured on Computer File showing us how to go from pretty much nothing to Hello World on a Sega Genesis. And I'm a fan of Matt's, so I probably would have watched the video anyway, but uh, it really is an entertaining and in-depth look on how much work is actually involved in all of this stuff. And even little things like you have to create your own font for the lettering used, and it's just a bunch of really interesting stuff that anybody that was ever into programming, or if you're like me that, that has no programming skills whatsoever, but at least interested in the process, I think anybody who fits in those categories would enjoy it. So... Uh, very happy Matt got featured on a pretty prominent channel. Uh, and if anybody didn't see it, I did an interview with Matt right when Tanglewood was released, where I showed footage of however long the interview took of Tanglewood as we talked. <clears throat> so I thought that was a really great way both to get to know Matt, the game, and to see it at the same time. And of course, as always, all of these interviews are audio only for people that just want to listen in their cars or on the subway or something. So uh, check all of this out if you're interested. And I still really enjoyed Tanglewood. Uh, it's a game that that I really feel could have been released at any time period and is just as enjoyable, but it is pretty darn cool that we get it on the Sega Genesis today. Retro Gaming Cables has just released the first wave of console-to-component video cables they first teased a few months ago, and these that are available right now are the Genesis 1, the Genesis 2, and the Saturn. There's going to be more for more consoles coming up in the future. Um, these are just the ones available right now, and I'm really looking forward to trying them out. I haven't even held these things yet. I've asked Rob to send me a bunch, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they perform against things like the HD RetroVision or even the RetroTINK um, RGB to component transcoder. So uh, I guess I won't speculate until I get them in my hands, but I'm looking forward to see how they perform. And as always, I'm happy that we have more choices because it doesn't matter what company you're talking about. In Retro gaming, inevitably, you're always going to end up with something out of stock that you wanted. So it's not a dig on anybody in particular. That really just counts for everything in retro gaming. And more choices means more abilities to actually buy the things that we want. So stay tuned for a video or review post, whatever I can get, manage to get out as soon as I get the cables in. 
The games Goemon 2 and 3 for the Super Famicom just received full English translations for each of them, which apparently is harder than usual because of the way those games were coded. And anybody that follows this channel knows how much I appreciate and get excited about translations because it's just really awesome that games that were only available in certain regions or for people that speak certain languages are now starting to become available to everybody. And even if it's not a game that I would personally enjoy or play, I still appreciate the effort that's put into it, as well as really the whole scene of people that are trying to make these games accessible for everybody. I often joke about translations from games like Afterburner uh, into many different languages, but it, while that's kind of fun to think of the 10 words in Afterburner being in different languages, it's very important and it's kind of cool that people from all over the world get to experience them the way that they should. So thanks so much for the entire team that uh, that really did this and took the time to do it. I think people very quickly forget how much work and effort goes into these things and, and quickly focus on whatever it is that they're into in that moment. But the bottom line is we get some pretty awesome translations of the game uh, and the team says that they're going to continue translating other par uh, other games and other of the Goman series as well. So big shout out to everybody and uh, just a quick aside, um, there was some controversy over this that I want no part of. Please keep it out of these comments. This is not the time or the place for them. Goombakid just posted a tutorial on how to install the RGP Pi Gemma, which is a device that allows you to interface a Raspberry Pi 3B or earlier into a Gemma interface on an arcade machine. And the tutorial is pretty good. The only difference that I did is I don't have a fan on mine because I have a very well-ventilated mini arcade machine that I'm using it in. But to be honest, I'd probably recommend following this exact guide just to be safe. You don't want to burn anything out just because you cheap out on a fan and a 3D printed part. Um, but overall, I'm very happy with this thing. Um, I found the software incredibly easy to use and set up, which is always a giant pet peeve of mine. There are so many Raspberry Pi images out there that work only if you follow the exact uh, installation that they want. So a six button controller, only this set of games. Um, you know, it's usually very hard to drop in, oh, I want this version of the game and I only have three button controllers on my arcade machine. And uh, this really just made it all very, very easy to work. So um, I think they might have a version coming up soon with uh, that's compatible with the Raspberry Pi 4. Uh, I haven't talked to the team that makes the RGB Pis in a while. Giant fans of their work, I just haven't had time to catch up with them. But at the moment, I had pretty decent performance with my Pi 3. And the one thing that I found is the convenience factor. So uh, I used to have a stand-up Mortal Kombat arcade machine with a tower PC that ran emulation. And every time I wanted to switch between, I would have to move the machine, climb into the back, you know, take the JAMA off the MK board, put it on this big PC with the different interfaces and all that. Um, and it, it worked well, but it was a bit of a pain. The whole thing actually was. And I, I think in the future, I would really love to get a sit-down cab that's meant to swap out arcade boards. And something like the RGB Pi JAMA would allow me to do things like, every time I play a game, plug in my original uh, arcade boards, but then plug in the RGB Pi whenever it is that I wanted to just use some emulation for a game I don't have. And I think having something that's basically about the size of your hand is probably way easier than trying to deal with the giant tower PC. Of course, all the, the MAME enthusiasts are going to remind me how much faster a tower PC is. But, you know, this whole thing, if you even think of cost as well, cost of the Raspberry Pi, the RGB Pi Jamma, the 3D prints, the fan, the SD card... 
all of that's probably going to be way, way less expensive than even repurposing an old tower PC in order to interface. So just my opinions on that. I'm a big fan of their work, and uh, I hope to continue to mess with that stuff as time allows. It's just kind of hard because I don't have an arcade machine in my apartment that I could do this stuff with. So every time I want to work on anything JAMA-related, i got to go to a friend's house and mess with it. So... Anyway, thanks to Goomba Kid for doing the install tutorial, and if anybody's into this stuff, definitely check it out. Matt KC just posted a video about Mario 64 that absolutely fascinated me. And while I highly recommend watching the whole video, I'll give kind of the short, short version. The first thing that's in this video that is mind-blowing to me is that fans of the game have been able to basically reverse engineer and deconstruct the game to the point where they end up with the original code, and then when they compile that code and compare the ROMs to an official dumped cartridge, it lines up perfectly, which is insane. That means the dedication and the talent of the retro gaming scene that's able to do this is just absolutely incredible. But what they found after they did that is also pretty interesting. They found that Nintendo did not use something called optimization when compiling the code. So when Nintendo switched from the Super Nintendo to the N64, they changed their programming, programming language to C. And in C, there's something called optimization. Now, I'm not a programmer, so I'm going to give a basic arm's length view of this. Optimization shouldn't be looked at as compression. It's a way for when you're compiling it, the basically the software kind of goes through and tries to find the most efficient way to compile the code and to run the game. Uncompiled... Uh, un optimized code will run at the slowest, which may or may not matter depending on what you're running it on. And the more you optimize it, the faster it can run and more efficiently. However, the more you optimize it, the more there's a chance of bugs being implemented. And what this team that reverse engineered the game found is that for whatever reason on the NTSC versions of Mario 64, Nintendo didn't use any optimization. And this caused game parts of the games with a lot of stuff going on to slow down pretty badly and well below the 30 frames per second that it was meant to be run at. And also interesting is the PAL version of the game did have optimization on when it was compiled. However, we can't really take advantage of that because that runs at 50 hertz, not 60 hertz. So the team behind this ended up recompiling the code with optimization level 2 on, which is, I guess, generally thought of as safe enough to not introduce any bugs, but um, still enough to get a speed boost, and that's exactly what happened. A lot of parts of the game that slowed down pretty badly before are now more optimized and run closer or at 30 frames a second. So this is all kind of nuts and awesome to me. Uh, I just... I'm, there's so many reasons you could speculate about why Nintendo didn't use optimization. Were they being overly cautious in the switch to a new language and a new platform? Did they not have time to fully train everybody? It's, you could go on forever on why they, why they did this. But it's really a neat thing and a very cool video. And there's comparison examples and everything else. So please check that out. Even if, uh, even if you're not too big of a N64 fan, but you love games and you love the nerdy tech behind it, this video is definitely for you. And to the team that reverse engineered the code, holy crap. Thank you. And wow, what a, what a crazy accomplishment. Smoke Monster just posted a detailed tutorial on how to configure your mister to output either 1200p or 1440p. 
And while that might not make sense to some, I guess I'll try to explain it as as basic as I can. Um, your average user of the Mister or of retro gaming in general will probably be outputting, when it comes to HDMI sources, things like 480p, 720p, 1080p, and hopefully eventually 4K. However, people that use capture cards or people that uh, that use computer monitors, which you could find some very fast, very quality computer monitors with higher resolution, might take advantage of these different modes. Um, so there's definitely computer monitors out there that are 1900 by 1200. 1200p. Um, and I believe there are 1440p monitors out there. I've usually stuck to basic resolutions because of, you know, editing and crap like that. But the point is, if you want to scale up to 6x, which is 1440p, and you have the equipment that can handle it, now you have a way to do it through Mister. And there's a ton of advantages to going to 6x depending on your scenario. So I would highly recommend going through and checking out everything Smoke Monster wrote up in here. It's very detailed. It has all the notes that um, and all of the video modes that you might need to uh, to reference in order to make this happen, as well as some scaling features. Another point that Smoke Monster made um, that I was just discussing with Risha the other day is to use the free software Notepad++ to edit in Windows. Don't use Windows Notepad or WordPad. So editing in WordPad is something that uh, all IT nerds know not to do. However, I didn't realize that Notepad might cause some issues. And while I used it all the way up until recently and didn't have any problems, um, it does make sense to just download Notepad++. It's free. You could right-click on stuff and then hit open with Notepad++. It makes it a lot easier. And also, don't be intimidated by the Mr. INI file. Back it up, of course. As soon as you go to edit it, make a backup. You could even leave the backup right on the SD card. Just copy and paste in the same directory and then change the, you know, .ini.bkp or something. Um, and then go ahead and play around with it. And if something doesn't work, just revert back to the original and then recopy it and start editing that one again. Just as long as you have a backup of your current INI, you could feel free to mess with this stuff. Generally speaking, the worst thing that happens is you put in the new video mode, your display or capture card isn't compatible, so you turn it off and try again. Um, you could do this by removing your SD card or by going through the network, which I find super easy. But once again, being a you know an XIT nerd here, using FTP protocols like that are super easy for me. So whatever's easiest for you is the right answer. But anyway, uh, giant thanks to Smoke Monster for putting this together. Um, while I think your average Mr. User would probably stick with 1080p, there are a ton of scenarios in which 1200p or 1400p, 1440p would be better and fit the scenario better. So thank you, Smoke Monster. Dan, aka Citrus3000PSI, has just announced that the next batch of GC loaders will be fully plug-and-play. So before anybody that just bought one gets upset, no, there's no performance difference. There's nothing. You're not missing out on anything. It's just the original version that shipped, you had to solder a flex cable on, which in my opinion was super easy. And anybody that's seen some of my videos with Voltar knows I am far from the best at soldering. So I kind of have the, uh, the mentality of if I could do it, pretty much anybody could do it. Unless it was your very first project. Um, or unless you would, you'd never touched a flex cable before and were uncomfortable. It was pretty easy. You lay the flex cable over, you know, anchor one point down, solder the rest, make sure there's no bridges and you're done. Um, you know, it could take a while for some people, but that's it. However, this version, all you have to do is unbolt stuff and then plug this in the place of the DVD drive. 
And now one warning, the GameCube has a ton of screws. So just disassembly and assembly is like, you know, 20 minutes probably all said and done for, you know, your average person. But the actual installation of the GC loader is quite literally when you get all the bolts out of your DVD drive, you lift it up, you put this in its place, line it up with some spacers, bolt it in, and you're done. So I think that's absolutely awesome. Anytime you could have anything be made into plug and play, more people are willing to uh, to adapt to the idea of having it. I haven't spent too much time with it, but the two things that I noticed by far were that Greg's uh, 3D printed case that fits in the tray was awesome, so you don't have to stick your hand down in there to remove the SD card, and it loads very fast. So I've always been a fan of the SD loading from the front port or even the new SD to SP2. I never get that name right. That goes in the bottom. They're both awesome choices for people that don't want to modify their GameCube. But if you don't mind modifying it, you can get some serious performance increase with this one. I didn't even really realize how much faster it loaded until I started playing it myself. But now there's options for absolutely everybody, which means we're all covered. If you don't, if you have a dead DVD drive, or if you want to take it out, you know, save it. Don't throw these things out, of course, and predominantly use the SD card. Awesome. If you really do, <coughs> excuse me, want to mostly use your original discs, the SD to SP2 and a front-loading uh, SD card just for booting is probably the best option. So we're all covered now. Uh, so thanks very much to Dan for, for going through the trouble of getting this to be a plug-and-play solution. And they should be on sale when they come in, I guess, maybe next month. But there's no pre-order or anything like that. So uh, I would just take a look at uh, or follow Dan on Twitter and to keep a watch on RetroRGB as well as DansProjects.com. So very exciting for people that want new GC loaders. The creator of the SNES remake of Super Mario Land has just released a new version of it. Version 1.2 brings further improved gameplay and camera movement, improved Powerball functionality, level design that's closer to the original, meaning hidden boxes and stuff, enemy hit points and boss difficulty are closer to the original, and there's some bug fixes. So for anybody unaware of the project, somebody redid the original Super Mario Land for Game Boy on the Super Nintendo and redid everything the graphics the music and i thought it was absolutely wonderful version 1.0 of the game was great um some of the mechanics about the gameplay kind of felt a little off i wasn't able to beat that version of it but the creator very quickly released version 1.1 that i was able to beat and i loved it i thought it was awesome and i thought it had just as much replay value as the original i could probably play that once a year and not get bored of it um, so I didn't really think it needed a version 1.2, but it's here, and I'm really looking forward to trying it to see if I could notice any difference, or if the game feels easier or harder, or maybe not, maybe easier and more challenging at the same time. I don't know. It's a hard to explain, but anybody that played the 1.0 version, the only way I could describe it is the controls felt a little slippery at times. Um, 1.1 felt great, so I don't know. I'll have to go back and try this one again, but... Uh, giant fan of the remake, you know, huge thank you to whoever did it. I highly recommend anybody with the ability to play this does, uh, whether it's the Mr., um, whether it's a ROM car or just emulation. I, I thought it was really impressive. And while I'm still and always going to be a fan of the original, I have a feeling that when I go to play Super Mario Land in the future, it's pretty much just going to be this version of it. Fans of the Sega 32X hardware might potentially have some good news. 
It appears that Kevtris thinks he found a fix for some of the video noise that you see. I guess when he was testing for DAC compatibility with the Mega SG, he discovered that replacing two capacitors with different values was able to help the switching power supply built in that introduces a lot of ripple noise. Now, mind you, this isn't just a cap replacement. I've tested 32Xs that have the caps replaced with high-quality ones. Um, this is actually changing the values of the capacitor. And I guess this is just overall to better support the signal itself. Now, I'm very excited and hopeful, but also skeptical of this fix, uh, because I think it might not be the only fix needed. Just like with all Genesis 1 consoles, there is no one thing that fixes everything. You need to do a bunch of stuff. And a lot of the video noise that I've seen personally in the 32X looks a lot like composite video interference. So we might also need a fix like disabling composite, kind of similar to lifting the subcarrier and the Genesis 1s. Um, I'd also like to try the inductor swap like it was discussed last year, I believe. So overall, if I could finally find a working 32X that doesn't constantly give me trouble, um, I'll be able to try all of these fixes and see if it really does make a difference. But I hope so. I hope that's all there is to it because I would really like a final way to experience 32X without interference. At the moment, if you take a triple bypassed Genesis, <clears throat> or of course the analog DAC, if you, you know, if you were a beta tester or if you're going to buy the upcoming one when it releases, you can get a crystal clear Sega Genesis signal out of it, but the 32X overlay has interference. And depending on the game, it might not be too bad. Some games use the 32X for almost everything, so those, you kind of see it. So I really hope this is it, and uh, I guess while I'm at it, I'll, I'll see if there's anything else I could find that might have the potential to upgrade. Um, I guess there's a service bu uh, bulletin that Sega posted years ago and schematics that people could reference as well if there's anything else. But I would just do the basic stuff that I, I look for on all the other consoles. You know, are there any components in there that have modern, more efficient versions? You know, I still swap the 7805s with 78SO5s on, uh, for power on consoles that have it, and I've never had anything bad as a result. In fact, sometimes, you, you know, you fix a potential problem because those will die eventually at some point. So maybe there's more stuff like that we could look into on the 32X. But while there's not a giant library of awesome games on the 32X, I do enjoy the few that I feel are great and would like to play them without jail bars. So uh, if you're into this stuff and you're able to test, try the fix, post your results, um, and see if we could figure anything else about the 32X that might be able to improve performance. Funnyplaying.com recently started selling an IPS replacement screen kit for the Game Boy Color. Apparently, this uses the same screen as the Game Boy Advance IPS kit, just a different ribbon cable that has different circuitry meant to go into the Game Boy Color. Um, I'm assuming it's going to be the same as the comparison between the Game Boy Advance screens and that it won't really look the way a Game Boy Color screen would look, but it looks better. So I guess, you know, imagine the look of an emulation with the performance of the original console. Um, the installation does require you to cut plastic on the inside of the case, probably because you have to rotate the screen and it's probably too tall. So just remember that you can get very good quality housing replacements for like $10 on eBay. I left a link there for anybody else that's interested. It's just bit.ly forward slash GBC housing, and that should point you into what you need. So I plan on getting at least one to try out. Uh, I'm going to get the 
replacement housing for this as well, just to make sure that I get uh, I don't have to hack up an original, especially if I make a mistake. While I never like to waste anything, I feel less bad wasting a ten dollar aftermarket thing than cutting a chunk out of an original case that you know that you can't really replace anymore with OEM parts. So uh, if you're interested, check out the link right now. I'm shocked I haven't heard about this before. I think it's been for sale for about a month, but I must have just been out of the loop of the Game Boy Color stuff. My apologies, I didn't get the word out sooner, but they appear to be in stock, so as soon as I get mine in, I'll do another review. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks so much to everybody that listens and watches and comments politely, and especially thanks to everybody that supports in places like Floatplane or Patreon, because without your support, none of these videos, the podcasts, the articles, and especially all of the behind-the-scenes research and development would ever happen without your support. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.